Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care, and with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Canva presents Unexplained Appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. It has occurred to me that good writing is a kind of morality. Honest communication, thoughtful use of words. I think that the way we talk to one another, the way we write to one another is about how we are interacting with one another and an attempt at basic human decency. I mean, your your language is one of your prime, your prime mechanisms. I mean, we can all communicate with tone of voice and eye contact as much as we want, but it's, it's the very words that we're choosing that are most important. That's Benjamin Dreyer, copy chief at Random House and eponymous author of the book Dreyer's English, an utterly correct guide to clarity and style. It is a surprise New York Times bestselling book, but a very welcome surprise. Ben and I wade into controversial waters, Oxford commas, semicolons, and garden variety cliches. Plus, how particularly in these times, good writing is a kind of morality. But first, let's get to your questions. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Hey folks, Cafe recently launched something to help you keep on top of today's news cycle. The Cafe Brief. It's a newsletter that recaps news and analysis of politically charged legal matters sent twice a week. Sign up to stay informed at cafe.com slash brief. That's cafe.com slash brief. Hi, Brief. This is Ben from New York. I want to push back against one of your conclusions and ask, do you really think it's inappropriate to use the word treason when we're discussing the president's actions? When intelligence officers describe what happened during the 2016 election, they use the phrase information warfare. And when we think about uh, the president kind of denying the existence of that attack, to me, that would seem to be giving some sort of aid to a party that has attacked us. Forgive the noise. I'm standing near construction. Okay, thanks. Uh, thanks for your question, Ben. Luckily, I'm not standing near construction, although there's construction nearby, as there always is everywhere in New York. Look, I, I take your point that people use phrases like information warfare. People use words like treachery, uh, words like disloyal. You know, there's lots of different words and phrases that people use. And as I've said before, I think people need to take really great care when they use a specific term that has legal meaning, not just in a statute, but in the Constitution itself. And treason is a big word. Most recently, we've been talking about the word treason casually thrown around by people like the president uh, with respect to folks like Jim Comey and Andrew McCabe and others who he says have potentially engaged in treason and Congresswoman Liz Cheney, daughter of Dick Cheney, who just throws that word around. And so I think given the treason is defined in the Constitution, uh, it is a very, very, very serious crime that implicates all sorts of things and is punishable by death. It should not be used lightly. Uh, whether or not some intelligence officers may sometimes casually use a phrase like information warfare. I also draw a distinction between people who are elected and people who are not elected. And when you have people who are members of Congress, up to and including the President of the United States, who just throw that word around, I think it debases the term. I think it debases the act when done by actual treasonous people. And I think it debases them. It also debases the dialogue. So I choose not to use it. Hello, Preet. My name is Michael. I'm calling from Indianapolis. In Robert Mueller's press conference, he used the term unconstitutional to describe the act of indicting a sitting president. I thought the reason for not indicting the sitting president was based on a Department of Justice 
policy, not law or constitutional statute. Could you clear that up? Thank you. Hi, Michael. You know, a lot of people have been talking about that sentence. I've seen a lot of people on television talking about the sentence in which Bob Mueller says that it would be unconstitutional to charge a sitting president, which makes it seem like that's his own conclusion, and he's come to that conclusion de novo, as lawyers might say. But if you look more carefully at his remarks, he says very clearly that he is basing his determination on that Office of Legal Counsel memorandum. And he says, quote, Under long-standing department policy, a president cannot be charged with a federal crime while he is in office. And then he says, that is unconstitutional. That, to me, is a clear reference to the memo. And so the memo itself, as we've discussed, I think, from time to time on the show, bases its interpretation on the Constitution. So it's a constitutional analysis, whether you agree with it or not, that's contained in the OLC opinion and upon which Robert Mueller is relying. So that's my understanding of why he says it's unconstitutional. It's based on the memo, but the memo itself purports to be based on the Constitution. Here's an interesting question we received by email from listener Elaine, who says, Hello, Preet. It seems like every time I enter the voting booth, I realize I'm expected to vote for judges about whom I know nothing. Attorneys I know think lay people like me can't make sound choices anyway, and a judgeship should be filled by appointment. But that seems to me like an opportunity for cronyism. What are your thoughts on the different approaches? And as long as judges do run for election, how would you recommend voters approach our responsibility? Love your shows. Elaine from Narberth, Pennsylvania. So that's a really good and complicated question, and I've been thinking about it for some time. Now, there are two different ways both prosecutors and judges and other folks can come into office. It can be by election or it can be by appointment. There are arguments both ways with respect to prosecutors. You know, district attorneys are elected basically everywhere in the country. In some places, they're not. The equivalent of district attorneys in all the counties of New Jersey, where I grew up, are appointed by the governor. So are U.S. attorneys, as you know if you listen to the show. Are there opportunities for bad decision-making to happen when there's an appointment process? Sure. Federal judges are all appointed by the president and have to be confirmed by the Senate, so that provides some check, I think, on these issues of cronyism or lack of competence, although some would beg to differ when they look at some of the appointments being made by President Trump. On balance, it's been my judgment over a period of time that the election of judges is not great, and it allows for too much both pandering to the public on issues of the rule of law and equal access to justice. And it unfortunately brings into the process that thing which I think has a corrupting force, and that's money. Raising money and having to run ads uh, and having to go door to door and convince people to vote for you when you're not supposed to be beholden to anyone if you're a judge strikes me as problematic. Another reason why I've been convinced over the years on this issue is one of the great justices, Sandra Day O'Connor, long since retired, has made it one of her chief goals to educate people on the problematic nature of the election of judges and try to get rid of that process in various places in the country. Um, there are some places, not New York, but other places where not only certain low-level judges are elected by the public, but also Supreme Court judges who have a lot of power and a lot of authority. And there have been instances, I think, of campaigns that you kind of don't want to see when you're talking about people who are supposed to don a robe and speak only through their work. And I know there are probably people who disagree with this, but I think overall, based on evidence, based on the work of Sandra Day O'Connor and others, we would be better off if judges were not elected, so long as there was a good appointment process with a check and a balance. And finally, you may know and appreciate that I have a kind of like-hate relationship with Twitter. Sometimes I'm more active, sometimes I'm less active, and sometimes uh, there's toxicity that happens on Twitter, and sometimes there's a bit of nonsense that happens on Twitter, and such an incident happened over the last couple of days. Donald Trump Jr., who I don't know personally, posted a harsh and negative tweet about Jim Comey. Then, on Sunday evening, he posted what appears to be a screenshot of a notification he received about his tweet that said, liked by Preet Bharara. Without my Twitter handle, just a generic liked by Preet Bharara. Donald Trump Jr. then, without tagging me and without using my last name, so I didn't see it for a couple of days, posted another tweet alongside this apparent notification that he got, which I will tell you is false, posted, me too, Preet, glad we agree on something, baby steps. So Twitter user and listener, Average Joseph, asks, at Preet Bharara, did you like this or is this essentially fake news? Well, I did not like the tweet. And as I wrote back on Twitter, hey, Donald Trump Jr., I didn't like this tweet. Check your facts. Baby steps. So this points to an issue that will occur more and more. There are lots of folks who have accounts where they've named themselves Preet Bharara but use different Twitter handles. 
Some of them are parody accounts. Some of them are American accounts. Some of them are Turkish accounts. Some of them are a little bit active. Some of them are not active. But it wasn't me, and it wouldn't be me. I'm pretty careful with my Twitter account, and I can look back and see and know what I have liked. Some people have suggested that I somehow, either intentionally or accidentally, liked Donald Trump Jr.'s tweet and then unliked it. That's also not true. If someone can find the fake Preet Bharara who liked Donald Trump Jr.'s tweet, you get a free hoodie from us. My guest this week is Benjamin Dreyer. If you are not already, over the next hour, I think you will become a word nerd. The Washington Post calls Dreyer, quote, the unofficial language guru on Twitter, end quote. Yes, we discussed the rules, guidelines, and norms of language, but we also talked about how communicating clearly is, in a sense, a show of empathy. And most importantly, I got Dreyer to weigh in on an important legal word matter. What is the past tense of plead? That's coming up. Stay tuned. Stay tuned is supported by Simply Safe. Alarm, worry, anxiety, panic. Fear has many words, but there's just one word for exceptional home security Simply Safe. They know it feels good to fear less. Award winning 24 7 protection for your home through it all blizzards, blackouts, and burglars. Two time CNET Editor's Choice winner, PC Magazine's Reader's Choice, Simply Safe has won awards from all the tech experts. Called Best Home Security by The Verge, and it's a wire cutter top pick too. With no contract and no hidden fees, Simply Safe keeps prices fair and honest. Take fear out of your home. Try a 60 day risk free trial today with free shipping and free returns. Order now on slash preet and have your home protected within a week. That's simplysafe.com slash preet. Be sure to go there so they know we sent you. Looking for something to celebrate your dad or give to your new grad? Get a one-size-fits-all gift, like an electric toothbrush and new oral health routine with Quip, with guiding features like a built-in two-minute timer that reminds you when to switch sides and sonic vibrations that are gentle on sensitive gums. Quip makes sticking to good habits simple. Sign them up for a subscription and they'll get brush heads delivered automatically on a dentist-recommended schedule every three months for just $5. It's no surprise that Quip is one of the first electric toothbrushes accepted by the American Dental Association. With the Quip electric toothbrush, you can show your thanks where it really counts. As a dad and a grad, I love my Quip. And over one million happy, healthy mouths love Quip too. Quip starts at just $25, and if you go to getquip.com slash preet right now, you get your first refill pack free. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash preet. Benjamin Dreyer, thanks for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Congratulations on this book, Dreyer's English, An Utterly Correct Guide to Clarity and Style, by Benjamin Dreyer, copy chief of Random House. So it's very clever putting your own name in the title so that you get the name very, very large. Yes. Was that your intention? When I first started working on the book, it had the title, The Last Word, which my husband, well, then simply my boyfriend, now my husband, despised. Um, <laughs> he said, it's bossy and it's hectoring and I hate it and you need to come up with a better title. Yeah, so we decided, make it more self-aggrandizing. Exactly. <laughs> okay. uh, a friend actually came up with the title. He said, well, the title should be English. And I said, well, that's a little Spartan. <laughs> <laughs> he said, no, 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 no. He said, because people will refer to it as Dreyer's English, like Strunk and Wide. And I thought, oh, that's very funny. And I made the joke in the office one too many times. And as we were getting closer to having to decide what the title of the book was going to be, that became the title of the book. So you're saying other people forced it upon you? Yes. I. I oh, I see. I, I moaned and I carried on. I, you know, I just wrote a book. I could have called it Preach Justice. Maybe that'll be the next one. Exactly. Um, <laughs> this book has been tremendously successful. I think it's surprise some people, not me. What is this book? This book started out as my desire simply to share the weaponry that I had built up over the years as a copy chief and as a copy editor. And I thought it would be fun and I thought it would be amusing. And, and basically it was also about scratching an itch that had gone dormant for decades, uh, the itch to want to write something. And then I fell back on the, well, write what you know, and what I know is copy editing. I started to work on it simply with the notion of sharing my tricks 
And it just sort of kept expanding and it picked up little bits of memoir and little bits of just sort of meditation on the quality of prose and and it just assembled itself. And it assembled itself? It assembled itself. That's interesting. Yeah. Passive voice. Is that all right in this context? I wasn't always running it. <laughs> it <laughs> just I, sort of happened. It happened. And it took me a very long time of, of very consciously trying to get everything right. And of course, I'm always trying to get everything right. I'm a copy editor. But at a certain point, I did a couple of years into the process, finally relax so that I could sit down at the keyboard, rev it up, and just start typing and not be typing, looking over my own shoulder the whole time. Explain to people what a copy editor does. Okay, a copy editor is the person who is handed a manuscript that its author and its its actual editor, its editor-editor, as I tend to call those people, they have decided after however many drafts they've been passing back and forth over however many years that the manuscript is finished. And that's great. But once it's finished, it needs to be copy edited. And copy editing is a matter of doing the the rudimentary things of making sure that everything is spelled correctly, making sure the subjects and the verbs agree, uh, applying basic grammar where it's appropriate to apply basic grammar, uh, doing particularly for nonfiction, but for all kinds of books, because all books have real world facts in them. And so copy editors will spend some time uh, doing their best to verify that those facts are essentially correct. It's not a deep nuclear level fact check, but you're, you're looking to make sure that things are correct, making sure that 8th Avenue in Manhattan, uh, that somebody isn't driving south on it because 8th Avenue <laughs> right, runs right. north. You have to be careful about that sort of thing. But you're also, as a copy editor, and, and this is where you're sort of taking it to the next level beyond simply making it technically better, you're keeping an eye open for an author's overuse of pet words. Uh, all authors have pet words. They all have different pet words. What's yours? I found when I was recording the audiobook for this, something that I hadn't noticed, uh, but the sixth time I heard the words garden variety coming ah. out of my mouth, I thought, okay, that's four times at least too many. <laughs> Did you have fights with your own copy editor? No, my copy editor was excellent. My copy editor did for me what I have always tried to do when I'm copy editing other people, which is for one thing to make you feel protected, another thing to really make you feel read. I mean, nobody is ever going to read you as closely as your copy editor does. Can we talk about the personality required for a copy? Are you different from other human beings? You need to be more rigorous and more detail-oriented than the average smart person? Or do you train yourself to be that way? I'm trying to understand what makes a copy editor. I think that being a good copy editor is a kind of knack. Before I was a copy editor, I was a waiter and a bartender. And being a waiter is a knack. It, it doesn't necessarily take intelligence. It takes a kind of instinct, and it takes an ability to, to do more than one thing at a time. Copy editing is a knack, too. It requires a good ear uh, for what works in English and what doesn't work in English. It requires a good eye. Uh, it does require an eye for detail because you're not in there to amuse yourself or to read for your own amusement. You're there to, to look for mistakes. So you have to have that kind of rigorous focus. Is it hard in regular life to let that go? So, for example, when you're watching television and you see a mistake in the Chiron, or you're reading the newspaper, and you see a mistake, does it, do you always see it, and you can never turn? It's like having x-ray vision that can be problematic if you're just trying to enjoy your Sunday. I almost always do see it, and I almost always find it funny. Um, <laughs> do you um, mark it up? No. I mean, unless, unless it's something that is going to be good raw material for something that I might use down the road. It's just like, let it go. Did you sort of intentionally collect raw material along the way? I had taken what was a departmental memo that I had inherited from my predecessors, and I had begun to expand it by putting in things that I was beginning to notice uh, were getting past our proofreaders and copy editors. And that memo began to grow and grow. And I would say that that's really sort of the germ of the book. So once I got it into my head that I was going to write the book, Everything that I saw and everything that I looked at became potentially part of the book. And I, I took to walking around with a pad in my back pocket so that I would never miss anything. You were that guy. Yeah, I was that guy. <laughs> so there's lots of reasons why I think people should read the book. And one, of course, is that, you know, lots of people's writing actually is terrible and can be improved. Mine own included, if I can say mine own. But the other is, and I think you put it very well, you say 
We're all of us writers. We write term papers and office memos, letters to teachers and product reviews, journals and blog entries, appeals to politicians. Some of us write books. All of us write emails. And at least as I've observed it, we all want to do better. And I think that's true, and I think people do want to communicate better. I mean, I hope that people want to communicate better. And I guess I found that they do, because there's proven to be an audience for this book. But there are always ways to make your writing better. Even when I'm typing the most casual email, and of course, I'm not a common example of anything insofar as <laughs> that sort of thing is concerned. But I'll stop, and before I hit send, I'll look at it and make sure that it's the way I want it to be. There are simple little tricks, like every time I'm writing an email that's to people that I work with and I find myself using the word not or don't or shouldn't, I stop and I look at it and I think, can you rephrase that in a way that is not about not and don't and shouldn't and turn it into something that is positive? It can be just as much an admonition as it was the other way, but make it a little less haranguing. Do you think that electronic communication and social media has made everyone a poorer writer? People do ask me that, and I can only say that I only really have the exposure to the writing that I'm exposed to. So I see the things right. that, for instance, that we're publishing at Random House. I see the things that I read online, at magazines and newspapers and other sort of journals. And I, of course, obsessively read what everybody's posting at, at Twitter. Um, but I, I find myself, of course, attracted to people who do want to write well, so that my response is essentially, I don't know what everybody's doing, but I certainly think there's a lot of wonderful writing. There's, there's almost more wonderful writing than I can keep up with sometimes. I've always thought there's an argument that in some ways electronic communication has improved people's writing because they have to do sort of more of it. That in the old days, if you wanted to get a point across to somebody, you picked up the phone and you called. Right. And now because, as you say in the book yourself, everyone has to write emails. You don't want to look foolish and you don't want to look like you're making mistakes in your emails. And so in some ways, in certain kinds of jobs, and also in friendships too, People communicate in writing much more than they used to, and text as well. There's a certain rhythm and style of texting that requires an economy of words. Is that a good thing? A lot of people think that editing means cutting things out. I don't always find that to be the case when I'm working as a copy editor. Sometimes a sentence is clarified by making it longer than it was. It needs a few more words to sort of breathe to make its point clearer. Uh, but I, I do find that succinctness in electronic communication is helpful. Certainly nobody likes an email that goes on for eons and eons. <laughs> yeah. um, but what I do find is that there's a, a playfulness, a sort of a jubilation in electronic communication, at least as far as I've witnessed. People seem to be having fun writing to one another. Why is language important? Why is language important? Yeah. Um, I think that language is important because good writing is a kind of truth-telling, and honest writing is a kind of truth-telling, and I think that one has easily witnessed the way that language can be distorted and used to, to tell lies and to make them persuasive. I think that you can certainly see when you're reading wonderful things what it does to your spirit and what it does to your heart, but also I find myself, and I imagine that you do too, witness to this process of using words to mislead. And some <laughs> people do it really well, and some people just do it sort of bluntly and poorly and obviously, it didn't occur to me when I was writing the book. It was not my thought. It's only become my thought after the fact, as people tell me about what I've written, which is a fascinating experience. Right. But it has occurred to me that good writing is a kind of morality. Now, okay, that's a big statement. Yes, it is. Um, because I think you have said somewhere, is there a connection between clear prose and morality? Is there? Yes, I think that... Honest communication, I think that thoughtful use of words, I think that the way we talk to one another, the way we write to one another, is about how we are interacting with one another and an attempt at basic human decency. I mean, your, your language is one of your prime, your prime mechanisms. I mean, we can all communicate with tone of voice and eye contact as much as we want, but it's, it's the very words that we're choosing that are most important. Related to that, in my own book, I talk about the importance of effective communication, not necessarily writing, but all kinds of communication in the courtroom, for example. And I say that effective communication is in part an exercise in empathy. 
which is, I think, either a subset of or parallel to decency, as you say it. Because to understand what it is that the other person needs to know and how they need to hear it means I have to put myself in the other person's shoes, whether it's a judge or a jury or, for that matter, any kind of communication at all. Do you think good writing has anything to do with empathy? Absolutely. And I think that's, I mean, that's a lovely thought. And that's, um, that's so nice the way that you express that. I mean, one of the things that I have learned in my job at Random House as a copy chief, as a person who runs a department, and I have people that I work with and wish to be an effective manager of and colleague to, it took me a long time to learn how to properly communicate with people that I work with. And it is empathy. It It is hearing the words that are coming out of your own mouth and thinking about how they're going to hit the person that you're talking to. I just became very self-conscious of the fact that I used the word <laughs> hit, which is not what I mean. At least you didn't say garden variety. Yes. Um, <laughs> when you see something that's good, good writing, do you notice it? Should good writing be noticed? Because every once in a while I'll read something and I'll note that it's good. And I'll say, wow, this is really something. And then you read the sentence again and maybe you underline it. Or if it's really, really great, you write it down somewhere to use later as people who talk a lot sometimes need to quote other people. And then there's other times I'm reading something and I'm engrossed in it, usually nonfiction, and I have not thought about the writing at all. And yet I'm turning the pages and I'm learning the information. And then I think, well, is that better? Or do they both have a place in sort of the world of great writing. I like writery writing. I always have. <laughs> um, I could tell that about you. Yeah. <laughs> when I start to read something, well, for one thing, I'm easily bored. The problem in part being that I have access and I'm exposed to so much writing all the time. I try to read a little bit of almost everything that we publish, which is hundreds of titles a year. And some things are better than others. Of course, not everything is is superb, but there are times when I will pick up something and I just get grabbed in the first two paragraphs and I just want to keep reading and reading. And it strikes me that the stuff that appeals to me most, it's not that it's gaudy or it's overwritten. It just crackles. It has a lot of just sort of oomph behind it. And and I find that really attractive. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's loud uh, or that it's excessively self-consciously clever. I mean, some of the best writing, to use a word that has meaning or it has no meaning whatsoever, lyrical writing, I'm thinking about the first time I picked up Marilyn Robinson's Housekeeping, which is beautiful. And it's not fancy writing. It's just gorgeous writing. I like that's a good phrase. And I've wondered about this for a long time, especially as a lawyer, when much of the writing is intended to make a point or to be persuasive. There are people who I think are quite smart who don't write clearly. And I wonder, do you think a failure of good writing is in some instances or in most instances a failure of clear thinking? Pause, I'm thinking. Um, I think that there are extremely smart people who are very good, clear writers. They take all the ideas that are in their head and they get them down onto the page in a clear, direct, linear, if you like linear writing. I tend to like it when I'm not reading, you know, Joyce. And they do that very well. But I have certainly, and I remember back to the days uh, when I was working as a freelance copy editor, I recall being given manuscripts by people who were clearly experts in their field, um, some of them attorneys and professors of law, and finding myself absolutely baffled by what I was working on. Not necessarily because I wasn't smart enough to know what was going on, on the page, but because the communication was just so muddy that I couldn't keep up with it. Now you mentioned it. I think you have said that the worst manuscript you ever read was drafted by an attorney, yes. one, of, one of my people. Yes. Do you think all attorneys are terrible writers? No, I think that some attorneys are, <laughs> I think that some attorneys are wonderful writers, Preet. I do. <laughs> How obvious was that one? That was pretty <laughs> obvious. Um, do you have an audience that you keep front of mind or not? Like a person in your life or a family member or a friend, a particular reader? I think that nobody's asked me that before. And I think the answer is no, I don't. I don't. I, I, I kind of felt you were writing for me, Benjamin. Well, then, then, <laughs> then, then maybe that's... I'm, but, um, but seriously, maybe that's how it's supposed to work. Yeah. If you just write honestly for yourself in the best possible way, every reader is going to pick up the book and think, he's talking to me. You know, to some extent, there are you know, rules of writing 
and some, you know, basic guides to style. And some writing is good, some writing is bad. But how much subjectivity is there about good or bad writing? In other words, is there writing that many other people think is terrific and you think is just terrible or vice versa? There's a lot of subjectivity to writing. There's even a lot of subjectivity to what constitutes what we might refer to as good English. Mm -hmm. And I hope you could like hear the air quotes I was I was putting on <laughs> either side of that. But I can think of many times when I've picked up a book that is being praised up one side and down the other, and I and I start to read it and I think, this is just drivel. It's overwritten. Are you going to name one of those? I think that I won't. <laughs> uh, I think All that, right. I think that I won't. I, I just want to say, I want to, if I can sidebar back to what we were talking about, particularly members of your uh, profession, because a name came into my head and it just made my heart feel really nice. Because one of the best experiences I have ever had working on a book, I was not his copy editor. I was the production editor. I was squiring the thing through the process. But I got to have a lot of interaction with him and a truly excellent lunch and book party. I got to work on Leonard Garment's memoir, Crazy Rhythm. What an incredible joy that was, and what a playful and smart guy that was. And there's a reason why a, an attorney wrote a book called Crazy Rhythm, particularly when he's a jazz musician on, right. on top of everything else. That sort of thoughtfulness, that absolutely sharp intelligence, I mean, that's a visceral pleasure for me, both as his production editor, but as, as a reader as well. I can get so, well, the word's about to come out of my mouth, I can get so jazzed by good writing <laughs> like that. That was a treat. I saw what you did there. Yeah. I want to talk about rules. Yeah. I had a junior high teacher, you know, 7th and 8th graders. They read E.E. E. Cummings or they read, it's often poets, but not always poets. And they say to the teacher when they make grammatical, quote unquote, mistakes or errors and, and do things that are not how 8th graders are supposed to write. They say, well, you know, that so-and-so writer does it. And so-and-so writer, you know, won the Pulitzer or won the Nobel Prize. And this teacher said something that I understand now. And it's very obvious, but I want to know how you feel about it. And I think this is true also of art. And he said, before you can break the rules, you must know what they are. Do you agree with that? I think absolutely that's the case. Explain what you think that means. I think that it means that somebody who aspires to be a writer or somebody who must write would do well to learn the things that we, by consensus, really, call correct. Correct grammar, correct punctuation, correct sentence structure, all those things. Once you've got that mastered, you can play with things as much as you like, but you're doing it, you're doing it with a will. You're doing it consciously. People who don't bother to learn the rules, who write what they think is creatively, to me, tend simply to write in a sort of muddy, unclear fashion. It's awfully flashy, but it's really not anything you want to spend any time with. So what then is the importance of rules of grammar about which we have consensus? Why is that needed? Because it makes, I mean, it makes your writing clear. It makes your writing comprehensible. Um, but is that because the readers generally will have an expectation of what they should be seeing and in what form and with what syntax, or is there some other reason? I, I think that I think that good writing hits a reader's brain. There's that verb again. What's my, I, I must be in a combative mood today. I don't know. I, I don't know. I'm very jazzed up. Yeah. I think that good writing gets into a reader's brain so that you can follow all of the thoughts. You may or may not be conscious of the writing that's going on, surrounding or encompassing the communication, but good writing leads the information from the writer's hand into the reader's brain in a clear way. I mean, it is one of the things that I say in the book is that if you are reading a sentence and you have to double back to the beginning because the writer used a particular piece of punctuation or used a word that could have been read as both a noun or a verb and you find yourself wandering down the wrong path and you get to this point and you think, oh, wait, let me go back and start again and figure out what the writer now I understand what the writer was trying to do, but you shouldn't have to do that as a reader. The writer should set you up properly so that you can get from the beginning of a sentence to the end of a sentence, no matter how long the sentence is, no matter how twisty the sentence is. But if you're paying attention and if you're there, you should be able to get to the end of the sentence without feeling as if you have been misdirected. You said something that would be, I think, surprising, surprising to me, and I, I kind of understand your point, but I, I'd like you to elaborate on it. Given your job as a copy editor and the chief copy editor. Uh, you've said you hate grammar. 
Yes. How can you hate grammar? It means that when I started doing proofreading and copy editing work, one of the things that I brought to that work was that knack that I was talking about, that I have a good ear, that I can recognize in my brain, in my ear, what works and what's not working. But I had an, at best, rudimentary public school education. I knew what a subject was and a predicate, and I knew the difference between an adverb and an adjective, but I hadn't been instructed in grammar. I didn't know these things, but I did have to learn them, and I did learn them, and I know these things. I can't necessarily, and and, and there's no reason for me professionally to remember the names of all of these things. Nobody cares. Nobody wants to be instructed in the margins of their manuscript by their copy editors. Just (laughs) fix the text. Right. But I I find that I have enough grammar to do my job properly. And if there's something that's not working, it's not that it's not working because I know that it's textbook grammatically incorrect. It's not working because it's not working in my ear. And I may go back and look some things up so that I can know why something is bothering me. And I guess that's all underneath the surface with me somewhere. But grammar doesn't interest me particularly. Can we talk about some of the rules of grammar that are okay to break? Sure. And I love how you talk about these things in the book. I don't know if this goes for everyone or just adults who have already learned the rules, presumably, and if you got to be careful with 7th and 8th graders or 6th graders, because I have a lot of sentences in my book that begin with and or but. Is that okay? Yes. And there are not a lot of very detailed points I remember from my education in, in the English language or how to write, but I certainly do remember being repeatedly told not to begin sentences with and or but. Of course you can begin a sentence with and or but, and a lot of writers do, uh, which doesn't necessarily prove anything, and a lot of good writers do, and that doesn't really prove anything either. Sometimes a sentence wants to begin with an and or but, and thus sometimes it should. But I'm always happy to say, as soon as I say that, it's not always the best way to begin a sentence, and you may find that your and beginning sentence or your but beginning sentence would do well to be attached to the sentence that came just before it. But here's my, so how do you know that? Because we've been talking about rules and breaking rules, but it's still there's a focus on rules. And then we also had a discussion a couple minutes ago about ear, having a good ear. And sometimes you don't know. And you do this in the book quite a bit, which I actually find fascinating. You have option A and option B. Which one sounds better? If you have a good ear, I think you know which one it is. And that's the thing that determines, for example, whether you start the sentence with an and or a but or some other thing, not the generality of the rule. Right. I mean, it's, is that next thought, is it a fresh thought? Is it a freestanding thought? Is it a severe turn in direction? In which case, sure, that's a new sentence. Start it with and, start it with but. If it really feels attached to the previous thought, if it has a sort of an intimate relationship with the previous thought, then maybe think about doing it any number of other ways, including, of course, to use my favorite piece of punctuation, why did you think about attaching this sentence to that sentence with a semicolon? They might, they might get along really well. Oh, we're going to get to semicolons now. Okay, good. You jumped ahead in my outline. So... You know, I, I kind of don't know what to think because I, I trust and respect you, and you've written Dreyer's English, the definitive book on utterly correct clarity and style. And I have another favorite author uh, who I just paid tribute to on the podcast some weeks ago, Kurt Vonnegut. Oh, and, yeah. And, and I was pleased to see that you actually acknowledge Vonnegut's criticism of the semicolon. So you, for the record, let the record reflect that you, Mr. Dreyer, are in favor of semicolons. This is true. I have been known to use semicolons, but it's bothered me my whole life in part because this is what the estimable Kurt Vonnegut once said about semicolons, which is in various ways not uh, remotely politically correct, but this is what he said. And you have this in your book at page 44. Do not use semicolons. They are transvestite hermaphrodites representing absolutely nothing. All they do is show you've been to college. What do you think of Mr. Vonnegut's statement? I mean, holy hell, what a stupid thing to say. (laughs) That's just, it's insulting on so many levels. Aside from the very bad sexual politics of it, the notion that there's something terrible about having a college education. I mean, people have purported to try to couch that remark in that, oh, he's mostly just kidding. To which my response is, he's mostly not funny. And and I like, you know, I like Vonnegut's writing just fine. He's not one of my favorite writers. Um, I'm sorry. Um, no, that's quite all right. So, but but I I now feel greater pride in my 
semicolon usage. You sometimes have to use one, right? You have a long thought that has, you know, subordinate clauses set off by commas, and then the next thing really should be attached to the first thing. You need semicolons, do you not? Uh, I mean, at their at their most rudimentary use, if you are writing a good long sentence that has some listing going on in it and any elements of the list are phrases that themselves include commas, you are probably going to want to separate the elements of the list with semicolons so the reader knows where item A stops, item B begins, item C begins. Semicolons have, you know, they, they have lovely other uses and that use of just sort of holding your thoughts together. It's like, this is not a freestanding sentence. I'm not starting an entirely new thought, but I am starting an entirely new sentence, but it relates very much to the sense I've just written. So I'm going to hug them together with a semicolon. Okay, I'm done with semicolons now. Okay, good. So I, in the lead up to publishing my book for fun on Twitter, and we're going to talk about Twitter too, would describe the process of my editing. And as a shorthand and kind of in a joking way, I talked about how I was killing adverbs. You have a view of adverbs. And in fact, it might be divined from the subtitle of your book. The second word is utterly, which I believe to be an adverb. Yes. So too many adverbs in writing, not enough adverbs in writing. How do you feel about them? I like adverbs, which should surprise nobody. <laughs> um, I What I really do like is when you can take a really good adverb and a really good adjective that are at odds with each other and sit them next to each other, and that makes your brain do this little sort of sparkly thing. It's one of the reasons why I tend to like to use the adverb terribly when I'm about to match it with an adjective that's very positive. I just sort of like that sort of weird juxtaposition. Right, like terribly gorgeous. Terribly gorgeous. Terribly intelligent. Um, And I do think that a good adverb... (laughs) Thank you for both of those compliments, by the way. Yes. I think that a good adverb-adjective combo pack is a wonderful thing. But even I know every now and then, it's like, you you don't need that one. I mean, I don't have a vendetta against adverbs as a rule the way I have a vendetta against certain specific modifiers. Um, like very. Like very. I mean, very. literally, I think you have said, I love the opening of your book, and also the rest of it, that if, if there's one thing that people could do to improve their writing, try going without certain words. So this is for all the listeners out there who all have to write, you know, sometimes. Name the words that they should stop using if they can. Very, rather, of course, quite, actually. Quite, is quite so bad? I feel like quite can be a little bit like terribly. Quite is nice, and when one suddenly envisions oneself <laughs> as Lewis Carroll, you're going to be reaching for a quite. Um, because, right. well, it has those nice consonant noises to it. So this next portion of the program, I think I'm going to informally note for the record that you have been qualified as an expert on English for the purpose of asking you the very important question, to which I know the answer, as all lawyers know the answers yes. to questions they ask. For the entire population of not just the Stay Tuned listeners, but of the English-speaking world, when presented with a choice between the past tense of plead being rendered as pleaded or pled, you, Mr. Dreyer, renowned expert, written a book called Dreyer's English, utterly correct guide. What is the correct answer? They are both useful versions of the past tense. The one that leaps into my brain as sounding better when we are discussing the past tense of the verb that precedes the word guilty is pled. 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 Could you say that again for the jury, please? Yes, pled. P-L-E-D. Not P-L-E-A-D, which people seem to try to sort of pass off as the past tense of to plead. Uh, and it's just very dangerous. And it comes from confusion because, of course, uh, we have to deal with the fact that the past tense of read is read and they're both spelled the it's same. It's not readed. Yeah, it's not and readed. Led. Sometimes we would be better off if it were readed. It would make for less confusion. But no, I th- <laughs> he pled guilty, but he pleaded with me not to leave. So you've got two perfectly gorgeous variations I would say terribly gorgeous. You should make good use of them the way sometimes you want a dreamed and sometimes you want a dreamt. You alluded to this earlier, this issue of language and prose and morality and Trump. Yes. We made it most of this interview without talking about Donald J. Trump. Yes. And you, you said somewhere, wrote somewhere, who would have expected that respect for language could become an act of resistance? Yes. 
What do you mean by that? That being victimized by somebody who has as awful an attitude toward the English language as he has toward just about everything else on earth. Immigrants. Immigrants. Decency. Love of your fellow human being. I mean, all the qualities that he does not possess. He also does not possess the quality of having any respect whatsoever for the English language and how it works and how it's punctuated and how it's spelled and how we capitalize some words and don't capitalize other words. Because I don't know why. I'm not, I'm not his pathologist. But this being dragged into the mud by people like him and his cohort and people who are happy to just lie to your face. I was watching a certain former vice president's daughter doing it just the other day at Twitter, taking a chunk of somebody's quote entirely out of context and using it to make the most boldly dishonest point imaginable. And I thought, it's my job this will not stand. This is not appropriate. This is not who we should be. My part of the job is to defend the English language. Uh, you have the privilege of defending uh, the rule of law. We each have our part to play. So I'm doing my best to do mine. Very well put. You, you know, there's another habit of the president with respect to punctuation, which is another pet peeve on which I also agree with you. Our language ideology is very much aligned. Uh, and that's the use of the exclamation point. Yes. Should you never use it? I use a lot of exclamation points when I'm texting. I certainly use a lot of exclamation points when I'm tweeting. Anybody who says anything nice about my book gets an exclamation <laughs> point. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Maybe even a couple of them. And sometimes I use the little double red one in the emoji file because that just pleases me no end. But insofar as writing is concerned, it's kind of like, you know, keep it in your trousers. <laughs> Um, a peri- you know, I didn't know you were going there. Yeah, a period is a very good way to end a sentence, or, or as my friends over in London like, a full stop. Full stop. A full stop. Um, you said something else interesting that I've thought about in the way you phrased it. Sometimes you don't need a question mark. Sometimes if you phrase a sentence in the form of an interrogatory and you end it with a period, what do you say about that? Yes, I mean, I know I didn't invent that little trick, but I certainly have been, like, using it incessantly. Um, Whenever I do write something like, well, he isn't really terribly bright, is he? It's like, well, I'm not asking a question, am I? I'm just making a statement. And I like the way something like that looks with a period at the end of it rather than a question mark. In fact, there are often sentences constructed in that form where a question mark is precisely what you don't want at the end of it because it's actually misrendering the thought. Right. What about uh, at the end of that sentence, question mark and an exclamation point? Oh, never. Never. Make a choice. That's a capital crime. Yeah, make a choice. <laughs> right. I'm loving this, by the way. Me too. So we've been talking about various kinds of punctuation, and one that sparks lots of very intense feelings and sometimes controversy and also is relevant, apparently, to people's dating lives now is the use or non-use of the Oxford comma, as it's sometimes known, (laughs) also known as the series comma. Yes. Explain to everybody in your very succinct way what the series comma is and why it is important to democratic republics. The series comma is the comma that you use in a list of objects or phrases between the last two items. Simply put, if I'm going to the grocery store to buy apples, bananas, and cherries, before and cherries, if I'm an advocate of the series comma, I'm going to set a comma there. If I do not believe in the series comma, if I'm one of those AP-trained journalist heretics, <laughs> and I've been trained not to use that comma, then I won't use that comma, and I will write apples, comma, bananas, and cherries. Now, my problem with the non-use of the series comma is that it implies some sort of particular relationship between the final two items in a list that those last two items in the list do not necessarily possess. So you should just set the comma. There are writers who say, well, I use the series comma when it's helpful and I don't use it when it's not necessary. And I find that most of them do precisely the opposite. (laughs) They will put it in there when it's like, yeah, even I could have figured that one out. And then there's some 85-word sentence between the last two items. There's no comma. And I think, 
I would have so loved a comma there, so I would have known what it was you were about to do. Why do we sometimes call it the Oxford comma? Uh, we call it the Oxford comma because it was, if I'm recalling this correctly, favored by the editors of the University of Oxford Press. Mm-hmm. What's amusing now is that most Brits, at least most Brits in my experience, don't use that comma. I don't call it the Oxford comma because I think that as a patriotic American, I should call it something else. Um, So I call it the series comma. It's also allegedly known as the Harvard comma, or at least, no, you will only read that in discussions of the comma. It's also called the Harvard comma. I'm like, no, it's not. As a patriotic American, do you also eat Freedom Fries? Uh, no, I like a good French fry, but I'm going to lowercase the F. <laughs> At McDonald's. McDonald's. I guess it's all caps. Oh, it's all caps. In the menu. It's all caps. So you can't really everything. tell. Lowercase the V in Venetian blind. <laughs> I see. You know, I mean, unless they're in Venice. But why it has become, you know, a sort of uh, a bragging right for people, I'm told, even on their dating profiles, to boast that they are advocates of the series comma. What is that about? I I don't know. Okay. I think it's a nice thing to do, but I wouldn't necessarily use it as part of my marriage proposal. <laughs> I'm going to love, comma, honor, comma, and obey. And obey. Who's obeying these days? Nobody's obeying. Nobody's obeying. Oh, believe me. There's no obeying. Can't even get the dog to <laughs> obey anymore. My early schooling, I went to, you know, a fairly conservative small private school in central New Jersey where there was a huge emphasis on English. We had a headmaster of the school, Russell Girani, kind of conspicuous character head curled up mustache, wore a top hat. In fact, this is in the 70s. No, really? In the early, oh yeah, in the early 80s. And he had started uh, years earlier, if my memory is correct, with a fellow, I think, former member of the military, an instruction school in writing, I think, for veterans. And then this developed into a, an actual school for young people. And they boasted that they had extra hours, you know, more hours than the local public schools did, even the Catholic school did, in writing instruction and English instruction. And one of the things we did that I was in the small minority of people who enjoyed, will show you how weird I am. We actually did that old-fashioned thing that I don't think my kids have learned to do, diagramming sentences. And you, you build a little tree, and you know what every part of speech is, and you know what modifies what, and there's a dissection of a sentence that in that time, I guess, under that theory of learning, would make you conscious about how you put words together so you don't screw it up. I'm not sure if that was, if that was good or bad. Do you have a view on people who get a little, you know, sort of overly into those kinds of mechanics of writing? I wish in retrospect that I had had that that kind of education because I might have learned any number of things from it. I mean, I also wish in retrospect that I'd been taught Latin or Greek. So there are things that I have missed. I mean, I had to learn in a hurry once I started doing this sort of thing for a living. And it might have been nice if I had been bringing something other than my innate ear to this if I had actually had that kind of rigorous instruction. I think I probably... Oh, gosh, help me. I would have found it fun. <laughs> I, 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 kind of, I kind of did. I can say with some embarrassment. I want to ask you about pronouns. Sure. Going back to the very particular English, you know, meaning UK English style grammar instruction that we got from, among other people, the headmaster of the school, Russell Girani, late 1970s, early 1980s, he said, and was very insistent on this, that a pronoun should always agree in number with its antecedent. Meaning, if the antecedent is singular, then you must use he, she, or it. And in particular, he was of the view, and famous orations reflect this, and lots of people in the style books, I think, all were of the view, that when you have a non-gendered noun, and then you use a pronoun to refer to it, you default to he, which seems not great for a lot of reasons. But it should not be, and it no longer is. Yes. It has been a very hard habit to unlearn. But lots and lots of folks now are using they, even when you have a sing. So, so then given all that, how should we think about gendered and non-gendered pronouns? It's a great big question with a lot of great big answer attached to it. The champions of the use of the word they as a pronoun that can easily be applied after a noun whose gender is Either it doesn't have one or it's not particularly interesting or important in the context. So, for instance, a student should be able to study whatever they want. Whatever they want. Is that okay? It's not the way I was 
trained. And the way we're trained does an awful lot about influencing what we think is correct or what we think is incorrect. And I had to wrestle with this when I was working on the book. I mean, I knew that I had to wrestle with it, and I wasn't looking forward to it because it's so fraught. It's it's such a fire starter. But the thing is, when you go back and read much of the writing that was published in the United States and in England throughout the 20th century, you will find that use of the pronoun he because, sure, a default human being is a, is a he. Normal people are he. And so you will see that and you will see, you know, a student should be able to study whatever he wants. And I remember it's the one example that it just tickled me because it seemed so sort of odd, which was that I I was looking through a passage of Anna Freud and I found that when she's talking about a child, a child, a child, unless she is specifically talking about an issue with a girl, she defaults to that pronoun he over and over again. That's the way many of us of a certain age were taught to write. Do we need to unlearn that? And we need to unlearn yep. it. What about the rendering, a student should be able to study whatever he or she wants? Which is awkward, and if you're going to do it once, it's kind of tedious. I have always made a game as a copy editor out of trying to solve what you might call a problem if you think that sort of thing is a problem by copy editing the sentence so as to either pluralize the noun in question so that I can use the pronoun they or to recast the sentence in some way so that you don't need a pronoun at all. Many of my fellow copy editors who will say, well, that's a really interesting game for you to play. It's a complete waste of time. Why don't you do something more interesting? (laughs) But it's an important issue. It is an important issue. It is certainly important not ever anymore to default to he as a pronoun for just some person. And at no point in my book do I ever use the pronoun he unless I'm talking about an actual he. Right. There is the other point of the pronoun they, which is not simply a student should be able to study whatever they want or whatever he wants or whatever she wants. The use of the pronoun they as the pronoun for people who are non-binary. And that's a thing that I had to wrap my mind around. And I say this, I slap myself on the hand lightly about it, that it shouldn't necessarily take a relationship with an actual human being that you are looking spang in the eye to make you realize that there are some things that are more important than grammar and there are some things that are more important than good pronoun hygiene. But I have a colleague. I was introduced to a new colleague whose pronoun is they. And I always stop myself. I'm always about to say pronoun of choice. And it's like, no, their pronoun is they. It took me a while to be able to get that word out of my mouth. I would do everything I could to avoid it. I would refer to my colleague as my colleague. I would refer to my colleague by my colleague's name. I would do all these convoluted things that I'm doing right now to avoid having to use that pronoun. And finally, one day, it just slipped out of my mouth, and I thought, oh, thank God that's over. (laughs) These are interesting language choices. Yes. That people who have not had their eyes so open... Yes, because they they change the the way you write the world, the way you read the world, the way you see the world, the way you are in the world. I mean, to use something that's going to sound even more egregious than the use of he as a sort of a non-gender default pronoun, I remember still working on manuscripts, and you'll still see this in books published in decades previous, where a default human being is white. So the only time the writer feels the need to identify a person as something other than white is when the person is something other than white. And it's like, Annette, a black woman in her 20s, walked into the room. It's like, well, I've already met 50 people in the book, and you haven't said anything about them. Well, of course you didn't. They're all white. Right. You know, they're normal. It's yeah, and terrible. Some of, these, some of these things, and they're not done in bad faith necessarily. People just have these terrible habits. Right. And it's a wonderful thing about reading. And I'm telling you, it's a wonderful thing about writing a book, too. It makes you see things differently. I'm a different fellow than the one who started writing that book because it was important to me to do all of that expressing myself clearly, all of that moral writing, all of that trying to instruct in a way that was lifting rather than haranguing. I mean, it changed me. It really, it, it sort of changed my chemistry. For the better. I'd like to think so. I, I, mean, I think that's so. Throughout the interview, we've been talking about things that are good in writing and things that make writing bad. 
since everyone who's listening to this has some duty to write, even if it's just emails to colleagues and to friends, any other very quick advice that you want to impart to them? Just be as succinct as you possibly can be in business writing where what you are attempting to do is to communicate facts and policies and and things like that and a little less fanciness a little less carrying on a little less reaching for whatever the sort of the buzzwords and jargon of the day are just write clearly and, and attempt a certain level of simplicity when it's time for you to write your novel or your dryer's English or whatever it is that you're doing, then go crazy and have a really good time. <laughs> uh, but in your day-to-day communication, make your point and then walk away. Move on. Move on, please. Benjamin Dreyer, thank you so much for joining us on the thank show. That was, that was a real delight. Thank you. If you enjoyed this session on semicolons and series commas, the conversation with Benjamin Dreyer continues from members of the Cafe Insider community. To hear that, and to get the weekly Insider podcast, join today at cafe.com slash insider. So folks, as I tape the end of the show on Wednesday, June 5th, it occurs to me that there are a number of incredibly important history-changing things to celebrate and honor. Three anniversaries in particular, all falling in the same week. There is, of course the 75th anniversary of the D-Day invasion. The Allied forces stormed the beaches of Normandy on June 6th, 1944, which essentially was the beginning of the end of World War II and allowed us to fight back against Nazi domination of the world. Not a small thing. One of the most important moments in world history. It's also the 30th anniversary this week of the Tiananmen Square massacre when the People's Liberation Army fired into a crowd of civilian protesters, mostly students, in Beijing. I was in college when that happened and still remember the images, and we've seen the images broadcast on television uh, and on the Internet over the last number of days. Unfortunately, not a lot has changed in China. That popular rebellion was squashed, and the death toll was actually never released. Just as sadly, according to reports, China and its government has done such a good job of wiping from the history books and on the internet any evidence of the Tiananmen Square protest that most young Chinese, I understand, have no idea that it happened. And from time to time, when someone from China travels to the West and is told about it, they're not sure whether they should believe it or not. And that's all the more reason everyone in the United States and around the world should remember the Tiananmen Square protest and massacre. And then third, this week also marks the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment passing in the U.S. Senate. The 19th Amendment, of course, is the change to the Constitution that said the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. So essentially, very late in our country's history, gave the right to vote to women. Many people have pointed out correctly that it didn't end all barriers to voting, especially for women of color, uh, but it was something important and something important to celebrate And just to end, on a personal note, a few days ago, I was home, and my daughter called me over to the computer and said, Daddy, will you come take a look at this? And I didn't know if it was an article or a story or some homework she wanted me to look at. That's very rare. She doesn't need my help on her homework anymore. Uh, And I looked at the screen, and she wanted me to proofread her voter registration form online so she could print it out and send it in, because she has just recently turned 18 and is very, very, very enthusiastically looking forward to voting in her first election. And it reminded me further of a time back in 2008 when she and her brothers were much younger. She was about seven years old. It will come as no surprise to folks that I voted for Barack Obama in 2008. And the whole family came. And as we walked out of the voting booth in the school in Bethesda, Maryland, that's where we were living at the time, I turned to my daughter, uh, who was the oldest of the three, and I said, look, it's really important that you vote. Promise me you'll vote when you're old enough. And she looks at me and she says, do I have to vote Democrat? And I said, no, you don't have to vote any particular way at all. Because she then said, I can't promise who I'm going to vote for, what party I'm going to vote for. She's seven when she says this. And I said, no, just as long as you vote, because it's important. And she said, yes, I will. And here we are. She's old enough to vote. There is no more important time in recent history than now for as many people as possible, including people who have just passed the threshold voting age 
like my daughter and so many others to make sure they educate themselves, get to the voting booth, and vote. Same for you old people. For all of you who still have not done so, register to vote at vote.gov. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Benjamin Dreyer. Tweet your questions at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet, or you can call 669-247-7338 and leave me a message. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to staytuned at cafe.com. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Your reviews help new listeners find the show. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Aaron Dalton. And the Cafe team is Carla Pierini, Julia Doyle, Calvin Lord, Vinay Basti, and Jeff Eisenman. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned. Simply Safe knows how important it is to feel safe at home. That's why they developed a security system that keeps working when the power goes out, when the Wi-Fi goes down, and even if a burglar smashes your keypad. Simply Safe has some of the fastest response times in the industry. If there's an emergency, they're ready to send help 24/7. Go to simplysafe.com/preet to check it out. That's simplysafe.com/preet. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this: high-quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle; it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. Support for this show comes from Fundrise. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping, and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes, and with as little as ten dollars by visiting fundrise.com/fox. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com/flagship. This is a paid advertisement.